Well, we're going to come to God's Word now. Um, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, please do open that up. If you don't have a Bible, just throw your hand up in the air and um, someone will come and get one to you. We're looking at 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, and we're finishing our series in 1 Timothy this morning. Um, so chapter 6, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. And in the Red Church Bible, that's on page 1,194. So 1 Timothy Chapter 6, verse 11. Paul's going to come and read that uh, to us while he brings us God's word. I'm going to invite Paul up. um, And I'm just going to pray for Paul before he uh, brings God's word to us this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul. uh, And the way that you've been speaking to him this week as he's been looking at your words, preparing. Thank you for the time that uh, he's spent in your words. And Lord, I pray that you'd use Paul now, speak through him. God, please step forward from the pages of your words and into our hearts this morning. Open our ears to listen, our minds to understand. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, James. Well, it is lovely to be with you. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Please do um, turn there and have that open in front of you. It'll all make a lot more sense if you do. Um, And um, I have the privilege of sometimes taking Oakwell groups to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is an amazing city. But it's absolutely dominated by one place that's dominated it for 3,000 years. And that's the Temple Mount, standing right above the city. Wherever you look, from any direction, you can see the Temple Mount standing um, above uh, the rest of the old city of Jerusalem. And it's a big space, about 23 acres. And on a Friday in Ramadan, it'll be packed with 180,000 worshippers. 180,000 people up there praying. Then when prayers end, suddenly... There's a tidal wave of people coming along these narrow little streets. And if you're going the different direction to them, it is really hard work. You're struggling your way through a mass of people, trying to avoid being swept along in the opposite direction. Some of you might have experienced that if you've been to a football match or a a music gig, then you've left your phone behind and you're struggling back into the venue against a huge wave of people coming the other way. And in many ways, that is a picture of the Christian life. On the one hand, becoming a Christian is the easiest thing in the world. We come to God with empty hands. Jesus has paid for all of our sins, and we are forgiven as we come empty-handed and lay ourselves before him. But as we turn to Jesus, we turn around. We were going this way. Now we turn around, and we're going this way. And yet everyone else is still going the other way, and we're struggling through the press of people against the flow against the tidal wave of people going the other way. And this letter is written to a man who is being called to to run, called to fight, called to hang on, called to go in the opposite direction to everyone else. And Paul's pleading with him to keep on going. It's coming to the end of the letter. It's a letter that Paul has written to Timothy, a man younger than him, younger than many in the church that he's been sent to sort out, a church that's afflicted by false teaching, a church that's afflicted by greed. And Timothy is trying to lead this church to a healthier place. And it's a battle. And Paul is pleading with him now in the final words of this letter as Paul signs off. Let me read you what Paul says to Timothy. 1 Timothy 6 Verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, 
godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Did you pick up some of those very energetic words um, in that passage? There's some very energetic, hard work words, aren't there? Um, Do you see the first one there? Is flee. You see that in verse 11? Flee from all this. Flee is a very powerful word. I was um, in a village in Provence one time in the south of France, and they were um, running bulls. There was a bull in the middle, and people were running in and grabbing ribbons um, off its horn, and then running back behind the fence uh, to try and get past the bull without getting knocked over by it. And it was all, everyone in the village was really enjoying it. Occasionally, the bull would run into a fence, and they'd all cheer um, as someone got over the fence just in time. Then, the bull charged the fence after somebody, and the fence fell over. And suddenly, there was half a ton of bull out in this village in Provence, and suddenly, everyone was running in every direction. People were fleeing. No one got hurt, but people ran very, very quickly. They fled. And Paul says, that is to be what Timothy has to be doing. He has to be fleeing. Fleeing. What from? Well, from all this. What is all this? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us. Glance back up at verses 9 and 10, and we see what it is that Timothy has to flee from. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap, into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves 
with many griefs. So what's the all this? Well, it's the desire to get rich. The normal desire, the desire that has shaped and driven most societies through most of history, the, society, the desire that shapes the lives of most people in our own society, the desire to gather stuff. Paul says, Timothy, you've got to run from that desire. Why? Well, well Paul says it's just incredibly lethal. It's temptation, it's a trap, it's foolish, it's harmful, it's ruin, it's destruction, the root of all kinds of evil. And it's led many people away, Paul says, from the faith. The love of money, Paul says, is like stabbing yourself, you're piercing yourself with many griefs. I know you thought about this last week, the need to run away from the love of money the desire for stuff that so dominates and shapes our culture and can so dominate and shape our lives. Paul says, don't put your hope in that. Run away from that. Instead, actually, he says, run after something else. See, it's not just enough just to flee the stuff that is going to lead you away from God. Instead, you've got to pursue the stuff that will lead you to God. You see, um, verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue, not just running away, but running to something. And Paul has a list of six things that Timothy has to pursue, six things that should be the center of his ambitions, six things that he should long for, desire. Firstly, righteousness, a life about which God says, that is good. That is pleasing to me. Paul says, make that your first ambition, righteousness. Secondly, godliness. This is a life that's Godwardly orientated. A Godward orientation that takes him seriously. Thirdly, faith. Paul says, grow in faith, Timothy. Pursue faith, a trust in God. Whatever the external circumstances, a confidence that our loving Heavenly Father has it under control. And then fourthly, he says, love. Grow in love as God's concern for us, as we grow in our understanding the depths of God's concern and affection for us, as that then overflows in concern and affection for others. And then Paul says, grow in endurance, Timothy. The ability to keep on taking hits, trusting in God's plan, and not giving up until the end of the race. But not becoming hard. No, sixthly, Paul says, grow in gentleness. Treating other people like God has treated us. It's a very challenging checklist, isn't it? Not just are we fleeing from the things that lead us from God, but are we growing in these six things? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. I find it a very challenging list. But this is to be the center of my ambitions for my life. Not to be financially rich, but to have a life that is full of these six qualities. But that won't be easy, Paul says. The world is opposing that. The culture that that belittles God. The flesh, our inner traitor, that wants us to defy God, the devil, 
a powerful spiritual being who hates God, hates us, doesn't want to see these things in our lives. These things won't come naturally and easily. We won't drift into these things. Paul says in verse 12, we need to fight for these things. Fight the good fight of the faith. We need to fight, Paul says. You might spend lots of time telling children, don't fight, don't fight, you know, leave each other alone. But actually, Paul says, fight, fight. We are to be fighters. Not just any fight, but the good fight. The good fight of the faith, holding on to the truth, being reshaped by it. We, this won't come naturally. We must flee, we must pursue, we must fight. It's energetic. And, and, and Paul says we need to hang on. Second half of verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called. The word take hold carries the idea of, of seizing, grabbing, hanging on, like a man who's fallen overboard into a storm-tossed sea under dark clouds, and, and someone's throwing him a rope, and he's holding on to it as he's being dragged through the waves towards the boat, and every wave is trying to pull him away from the rope and, and loosen his grip on the rope, but he's being pulled in towards the boat. Paul says, seize, hold on to eternal life. Lay hold of eternal life. We've got to hang on. It's hard work that Paul is calling Timothy to. Fleeing, pursuing, fighting, hanging on. That's the shape of the Christian life. How can we find the strength and the resources to do it. Well, Paul tells Timothy in verses 13 to 16, as we see Paul motivating Timothy to live that way by reminding him of the realities that we so often don't see in the glossiness of normal life, the realities that are sometimes hidden to us but actually are the truth. Verse 13, everything depends on God. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything. Every breath you draw is a gift from God. Every breath you draw is a gift from God. You owe everything to him. It, it is right that your life is orientated upon him. Reflect upon your continual dependence upon him why would we dare do anything else than have him at the center? It would be ludicrous to live another way. And every other person you meet is utterly dependent upon God. Every beat of their pulse. Why would I take them more seriously than God? Why would I care more about their opinion than about God's opinion? God gives life to everything and everyone. I am utterly dependent upon him. So is everyone else that I meet. It is right to have a Godward orientation to my life. But then more than that in verse 13, there's the example of Jesus. In the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. When, when I'm struggling with the battle, when I'm struggling with the fight, I need to fix my eyes on Jesus, battered and blooded, 
punched in the face by soldiers dressed in a purple robe with scratches on his head from the crown of thorns with blood trickling into his eyes, standing before a corrupt Roman governor who knows that he's innocent. Outside, a crowd is shouting for his blood. At the gateway, the leaders of his nation are accusing him of all sorts of false things that everyone knows is a lie. And he's the one who can talk his way out of any situation. But he doesn't. He carries obediently on the path the Father has set before him and goes to the cross to drink the cup that he has been called to drink. He's our example. He's the one before whom we are serving. He never calls us to do anything more than he has already done. But he does call us to take up our cross and follow him. But as we follow him, we can imitate him because Hebrews tells us that he did it for the joy set before him because of his goal. And in the same way, Paul now sets Timothy's goal before him. If you look at verse 14, I I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. One day this will happen. One day Jesus will appear. Suddenly the sky will roll back and he will be there. Every proud man will be humbled. Every spiritual force will be obliterated. Every knee will bow before him as he comes in glory with his angels and with our brothers and sisters who have gone ahead of us. This will happen. He will appear. And on that day, the battle will be finished. The battle will be over. The struggle now is is temporary, and the goal is worth it. One day it'll all be over. We'll, We'll never cry, we'll never fear, we'll never wrestle with temptation again. I find it so much easier to struggle when I know that the struggle is brief, when I know the struggle has an end. I can throw myself into a final effort when I, when I see the finishing line. And Paul says, look at the finishing line. It's coming. It's coming. Jesus will appear. When is it coming? Well, God will bring it about in his own time. God is running to his own schedule. And it will be bang on time on God's schedule. Might be 20,000 years in the future. Could be this afternoon could be before the end of the year. We, we, we don't know, but it's coming. And on that day, all of our life will just seem as brief as a breath that's hung in the air for a minute and, and gone. Like one grain of sand next to all the sands of the Sahara. But just mentioning God causes Paul to overflow with praise. Have a look at, at what Paul says, verse 15. Um, God, the blessed and only ruler, the king of kings and lord of the lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. God is the only ultimate ruler, Paul says. Boris, Donald, Vladimir, President Xi, President Macron, Ayatollah Khomeini, 
these guys, they, God, God breathes on rulers and they are gone. The Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and he gives them to whoever he pleases. Daniel 4, 17. Our God is the ultimate ruler. He alone is immortal. He alone is self-existent. Everything else came into existence because of him. Everything else in this world is, is the product of cause and effect, isn't it? But not God. He is, he is the cause. He has no cause. He just is, and he always will be. He alone is immortal. He lives in unapproachable light. If we tried to approach him any way apart from through Jesus, it would be like a, a snowman trying to land a snow rocket on the sun. Just be burnt up long before it arrived, consumed by the consuming fire of God's holiness. No one has ever seen him. He's beyond our ability to grasp or see. In the Old Testament, people had glimpses of his glory, but never a full display. Moses saw the afterglow of his glory after he'd been hidden in a cleft in the rock. The elders who saw him on Sinai came home talking about the pavement under his feet. Isaiah saw him in the temple, but all he could talk about was the edge of his robe. God is so far beyond our ability to grasp, so mysterious, so high, so utterly glorious. And that is the God that we will one day stand before. So if we want to grow in living a Godward life, a life that reflects his glory and that is orientated upon him, we must contemplate him. We must contemplate his, his infinite power, his infinite greatness, the way everything depends upon him. And yet his amazing humility entering this world and being beaten by his creatures. And we must look for the day of the appearing of our Lord Jesus. That's why Paul finishes the letter, I think, by talking in verses 20 to 21 about hanging on to the truth. Do you see that at the end there? Verse 20, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. I... At this point, I think, wait a minute, Paul, surely you've wrapped up with saying amen in verse 16. But Paul, Paul goes, no, hang on to the truth. You see, what Timothy has been entrusted with is, is the good news. And it's a precious treasure which, which he and we will have to give an account of what we've done with it. But also one which needs protecting, needs guarding. Second half of verse 20, turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have departed from the faith. Paul says there are false ideas out there, ideas that deny the gospel, ideas that deny the reality of our brokenness, as though we could somehow be good enough for God by just trying a little bit harder. Ideas that deny the purity of God, as though he just shrugs his shoulders at wickedness, like some sort of doting grandfather. Ideas that deny the historicity of the resurrection as though Jesus is just a dead teacher in a grave somewhere in the Middle East. There are destructive ideas out there. And we must, as we fight the good fight, guard the gospel and hand it on to others. And this feels like a sudden diversion away from the practical truths that Paul's been talking about, but, but it's not. Because it's these, it's these truths, the truth of the gospel, that that empower us to live the godly life. 
You see, sometimes I find myself thinking, surely it doesn't matter what people believe as long as they live a, a good and a generous life. But, but that's foolish. Satan is very strategic. And he is constantly trying to dig out the foundations of a God-honoring life. And the God foundations of a God-honoring life is the gospel. It's the truth about God. So we must guard it, meditate on it, fill our minds with it. But between this section of this beautiful prayer in verses 13 to 16, and then this call to guard the truth in verses 20 to 21, he fixes his attention on one last practicality of Timothy's situation. In verse 17, he shifts his focus to the rich. And it's easy for us at this point to sit back and say, well, it's a pity that Kanye West and Jeff Bezos and the Sultan of Brunei aren't here this morning. This would be very helpful for them. But in 6 verse 8, Paul sets a very interesting baseline of sufficiency. Have a look at what he says in 6 verse 8. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Paul says that's the baseline of sufficiency. If you have food and you have clothing, then you have enough. Now, many people in this world don't have that. And it may be your situation is that you don't have that, in which case this church would love to help you. But many of us in this church are in a situation where we have more than just our food and clothing. We've been able to save something. We've been able to maybe buy a car or put some equity into a house or take our family on holiday. And in that case, we are richer than most people in the world, richer than most people through history, probably as rich as those who Paul addresses as the rich in Ephesus. I am rich. And Paul says that means that I have two dangers. Verse 17. Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant. Danger number one is arrogance. Our brains play funny tricks on us. When we're in a situation where we're better off than someone else, I read an interesting article by a psychologist showing how they, they did experiments and found that people invented narratives to explain why they were in a better situation than somewhere else, why they deserve it. And you might be thinking, well, Paul, I do deserve it. I worked jolly hard using my skills, and I've been rightly rewarded. But, but who gave you those skills? Who put you in a country where your hard work is rewarded instead of exploited? Who gave you every breath you've drawn as you've worked? Look at how Paul describes God in verse 17. God, who richly provides us with everything, for our enjoyment. Everything we have is a gift from our loving Heavenly Father. It's, it's stupid to swagger about a gift. It's foolishness. Imagine a toddler who's swaggering about a gift that he's just received and thinking he's better than everyone else. No, no, no. But that's what we're like if we become arrogant because of what we have. It is all a gift. Don't swagger. Be grateful, Paul says. But then danger number two is that we put our hope in wealth. What does that mean? Well, imagine that you're driving along the road and a worry comes into your mind. But you dismiss it and you say, it's okay, we'll be okay, we can cover that. If that happens, we can afford that to, to resolve that problem. Or you're putting your, help, your hope in your wealth, saying my resources will cushion me. Or as you contemplate the future, you say, if I get that level of wealth, then I'll be secure, I'll be able to relax. 
Well, Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Jesus said, didn't he, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Today, I'm sure he'd app where stock markets dive and banks go bankrupt and housing prices crash. This world is so uncertain. Financial security is, is always an illusion. It's always at the end of the rainbow. It's always just over the next hill. It's never, it's never here. We can never have security in this world. We are outside of Eden and away from security. In the last few years, billionaires have been snapping up properties um, in New Zealand in an attempt to escape the, what they see as the instability and insecurity of America. And I think, you know, I love New Zealand. It's a beautiful country. It's home to the world's second best rugby team, don't you know? Um, and, um, and billionaires have been buying properties there, and, um, but they've been buying them on the slopes of volcanoes. I think, wait a minute, guys. Is this really, you know, is this your absolute security? A home in the, on the slope of a volcano. But I think it's a brilliant picture of all our attempts to find security in this world. There is never security in this world. Our money cannot give us security. We mustn't quiet our worries by looking at our money. No, we quiet our worries by looking at our Heavenly Father. Tell them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I needn't fear tomorrow because my heavenly father knows what I need. My heavenly father cares deeply for me and he loves to give me good gifts to enjoy. That's why I'm free to enjoy today without worrying about tomorrow. Mum's cooking me lunch today and it'd be rude not to enjoy it. It'd be rude to her, it'd be rude to God. All my good gifts are a present from him. And so what are we to do with that more than enough, if we have more than enough? Well, verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is how we show that we're not owned by what we have, by being generous, by converting our monetary wealth into a wealth of blessing for others. And as we do this, verse 19, we build up true riches, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Do you see the contrast between verse 19 and verse 17? Verse 17, riches which are so uncertain. Verse 19, a firm foundation for the coming age. You see, there is one place where investments are truly safe and truly certain, where the value of investments never goes down. And that is the heavenly city, whose architect and builder is God. So we invest in that. And it relativizes our attitude to this world. This world is not our security. This world is not our home. This world is not a secure place. And we say with John Newton, fading is the world's best treasures, all its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. God is real. 
gives life to everything. He dwells in unapproachable light. The Lord Jesus has died for you, and he is returning in glory. So live a life centered upon him, not upon anything else. Flee the desire for wealth. Run to a God-centered life. Make it your ambition to live a life that is shaped by these six things. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Heavenly Father, we pray that we will fight the good fight of the faith. We pray that we will pursue these things. We thank you for our brother John Wallace, who is safely home with you now. And we long that we too will be faithful to the end of our days, following you without all our hearts. Lord, keep us going, we pray. Lord, we pray that you will fill our minds, that you will fill our hearts, and that we won't be seduced by the bright lights of this world. We pray that we won't be those who wander away from the faith and pierce ourselves with many griefs. We ask for your grace. Amen.